be charged with involuntary manslaughter. BBC News. Is first past the post a winner? There are moves to change the ways MPs are elected. And should we ban the burqa? It's all in today in Parliament in half an hour. Before that, on BBC Radio 4, the writer and documentary maker John Ronson presents the final part of his latest series. This week, he looks at our drive to be ambitious. OK, so here it is. This is the very first Christmas card I received last year. I mean, everybody gets work Christmas cards, you know, from your accountants or from the bank and so on. But this was a particularly unusual year in that it was about ten days before Christmas that I'd only received one Christmas card... And it was from uh, the serial killer Dennis Nielsen, who I'd had a correspondence with about a book that I'm writing. And it says, To John, wishing you a wonderful Christmas, Des Nielsen, full set in prison, December 2009. Um, It did give me pause for thought, and it made me reflect on the price of ambition that I had worked very hard, I'm 42, and... If my only Christmas card was from Dennis Nielsen, what had I sacrificed in my ruthless stampede to the top? And it made me wonder what people give up for ambition, what are the consequences of ambition? So I wanted to make a programme that looks at the kind of life cycle of ambition and how it changes as we get older from childhood up to the age of retirement. Uh, And does age and experience make us wiser or more stupid when it comes to ambition. So this programme has got five ambitious people in it, each from a different age, and it starts with uh, Hugo, who's ten, and we found Hugo at a club for uh, gifted and talented children. I've always been an independent thinker, I've always had my own ideas. I'm more focused than the average ten-year-old. Right. And do you all get together and have meetings, like lots of gifted children getting together? I've never been to one of the meetings, um, but... I like the magazine, Fuse. Right. I ask you that because when I was your age, they told me that I was gifted and I went to a meeting and I, and, and I was in a room with a whole bunch of gifted children. And I've got quite a bad memory of it. Can I tell you what happened? What? Well, the problem was most of the gifted children there, they had a very kind of specific gift. So, like, there was a piano genius and there was a maths genius. and He and was so, good at physics or whatever. Yeah, exactly. He was, like, you know, at the blackboard and he was, like, put, doing equations on the blackboard and, and the piano genius was, like, playing the piano beautifully. And I turned up. And, and the problem with my gift was that it was quite indistinct. Nobody quite knew. So they sort of said to me, Jonathan, do you want to do an equation? And I kind of shook my head and sort of looked frightened. And, and I kept on sort of trying to work out exactly what my gift was. And finally they said, do you want to write some music? And I said, OK. So I kind of got one of those sort of music sheets and just wrote lots of notes. And they all looked really impressed because I was writing it so fast. And then they handed it to the kid playing the piano. And he just kind of went, blah, blah, dang, dang. And it was just sort of made no musical sense whatsoever. And they all looked really disappointed at me. And I felt embarrassed. And then I left the gifted children's club and never went back. Okay. Hugo, is it true that you've got a really great idea for a particular building that you've designed? Yeah, it's called the Twisted Needle, right? And imagine a basic skyscraper, but no windows. Okay? Okay. Make it all in black glass, right? Then pretend that basically a giant gets hold of each end and he twists it a bit. Where's it going to go? Somewhere in Tokyo or London or some capital city. Do you sometimes picture 
yourself as an adult, like living somewhere? Sometimes. And where do you live? Well, I had an amazing idea mm. for a house, a giant house, the size of a volcano, and it was a really good idea, but it had one literally giant floor. Um, where is it? It's in Malta. How many square foot was it? The top, so the smallest floor, would be about the size of Gatwick Airport. <laughs> Too big. And are there any kids in your class who want to say to you, oh, you'll never make it, you know, who's sort of, like, jealous of your ideas? There are kids in my class who will say, oh, you'll never make it, or when I show them some sort of skill or whatever, they'll just criticise it, say that it's really easy, as in they know that it's not easy, but they say that it is just to make them feel small. Why do you think they say that to you? Um, they're jealous. They don't like me for some reason. Or I don't know. But none of this puts you off your ambition? No. <laughs> Definitely not. It doesn't change it in the slightest. Is there any downside to being this ambitious? Um, I naturally set my sights very high. So if I tried to be this ambitious and that failed, I'd be quite kind of disappointed in myself. You're a perfectionist? Yeah, <laughs> that's a perfect word. Perfectionist. I want to fulfil my full potential. Which is what? Which is infinite. Sahara Zazado is 11 years older than Hugo. She's 21 and on the cusp of entering politics. She's president of the Conservative Future Association at Birmingham University. How do you know your full potential is infinite? I've, I've I always... just think... I've got an awful feeling that my full potential is finite. Maybe it's just because I'm older. But... <laughs> no, I think human potential is infinite. So, okay, do you imagine yourself as like a kind of knight with a sword, you know, just battling your way? Yes, I do sometimes. <laughs> because there are loads of barriers. But that makes it even more exciting when you have rivals and when you have people who don't like you it makes it even more interesting do you have sort of tricks to get over if you're feeling like nervous or insecure do you have like little tricks to get yourself over that <laughs> actually music really helps you know songs that make you feel stronger but my brothers actually are into the music so they produce music and their songs are often really empowering one of them is called power the mentality it's passed to my mind Keep them moving from time to time To make them device Life is a test But did the revise Trying to push for the rise You gave me redefined You got the time I've never really known myself Lack confidence Even if I do I never show it Because I don't think I would benefit I don't think others would benefit either Do you think if, if you show it They kill you? Oh yeah <laughs> Yeah possibly If you show weakness yeah, definitely. If you show weakness, I don't think it's good at all. And others will see that. And take you. advantage. What about things like sort of social life and friendships? Are you sacrificing any of that? To some extent, I guess. But I'd say I do have a social life. But I just don't have time for me anymore. Because even socialising, you sort of do it for others mainly too. You mean it's like kind of networking? Yeah, it can be networking or because friends want to see you but then you're busy but you still go 
So even that is sacrificing <laughs> dissertation time. <laughs> Sahar. Marcus Waring is 39. He's 18 years older than Sahar, and he runs the restaurant Marcus Waring at the Barclay, which is in Knightsbridge in West London. Hugo and Sahar are preparing for the moment they'll make their big impact on the world, whereas Marcus is in the grip of it. The only time I actually felt that I was good at anything was when I walked into a kitchen. When I went to catering college, I found myself at the top of a class. I found my forte and what I wanted to become at the age of 15, 16. How do you know when something's perfect, a dish that you're preparing? You don't, because you never get to perfection. You don't know what perfection is. I think perfection is just something that you would love to achieve, but exactly what is it, I wouldn't know. Food drives chefs into becoming something, almost a Jekyll and Hyde character. And you can sit here and walk away today and think I'm a very calm, very whatever sort of individual and you'll have your opinion. But when I walk back into my kitchen, I become someone else. And you become this, this, this very driven person. Step out of line in there, abuse the food, cut a corner, don't care type of attitude, chefs. You're going to hit me face on. I'll plough straight through you. But the law's being an explanation. Are you terrifying? I'm terrifying maybe because I can bark. And I can shout and scream just like my predecessor. But that's only because they forced me to do it, not because it's out of choice. Isn't it better to be honest? And sometimes the truth hurts, but you have to deliver it. This drive that you have in the kitchen, can you pretty much keep it in the kitchen or does it sort of bleed into your everyday life? Um, it does lead into your everyday life. I do have a family and I do spend time with them. Not a great deal. You know, I do become a dad. So after a time when you check yourself and think, oh, my God, I've just treated my kids the way I would treat my staff? Yes, I do, but because they would have uh, deserved it or I'll pull them back into line. My eldest son, Jake, is eight, uh, Archie's five and Jesse's two. And yes, I can pull them down and I can raise my voice with them from time to time, but I'll always give them an understanding of why I've done what I've done, exactly as I do in the kitchen. And they also know that if they do step out of line, you know, Dad will come down on like a ton of bricks. I suppose that is an element of my kitchen, but there's nothing wrong with that at all. My father was a workaholic, and I never, ever, ever saw my dad from Sunday to Monday. The only way I could get to see my father was to go and work with him and spend some time with him after school. Didn't do me any harm whatsoever, and I don't feel deprived in any way. I've got a great father who provided a lot for me. What do you like when you're in a sort of enforced period of relaxation? Over the years, with my previous partner, you used to feel guilty and you used to feel like you had to sit on the beach and make a call to the kitchen, make a call to the restaurant, and you were made to feel guilty if you never did that, if you didn't check in. This is uh, Gordon Ramsay. Yes. That used to make me feel really bad. It's like, oh, I, I'm not allowed to have a holiday. And that's why I used to almost not, not bother having them in the end. And I was like, well, sod it, I'll just stay here mm. and I'll just watch the restaurant, produce great food, fabulous figures, make them rich, and as long as they're happy... For the first time in my life, last year, it was my first holiday alone and away from them. It's the best holiday I ever had because it's the first holiday I absolutely cut off. And did you take your, your phone to the beach? Uh, yes and no. It was there. Never put one phone call into the restaurant. My operations manager, Chantelle, would text me from time to time telling me what the revenue figures were, what the covers were, but I never got hit with one problem. Why are you so driven? Where does it come from? Um, fear of failure fear of wondering what if 
I never want to be able to sit in a restaurant with my kids and my, my wife next to me and say the same old speech you hear time and time again. Don't do what I did, son. Don't make mistakes or I wish I'd have done that when I was your age. That sort of parental regret that they never had the opportunity. I think that's what drives me. I want to be able to sit around the table and say, well, I did everything I ever wanted to do and more. And I think that's why I'm so driven, the fear of failure and the fear of, of being normal. That scares me more than anything, being normal. Box standard, boring. Do you know what? I couldn't think of anything worse. Marcus Waring. There was a time when Sean Atwood couldn't think of anything worse than being normal either. He's two years older than Marcus, 41, but when you meet him, he seems about 20 years older. I started following the stock market when I was 14. My first investment was made when I was 16. Maggie Thatcher was privatising British Telecom. So I went to my nan, who, who loved the Iron Lady. She gave me 50 quid, and um, it went from 50p to, like, 99p, almost double the first day of dealings. And then did you sell? Yeah, we sold for a double, and I was hooked ever since. Liverpool couldn't hold Sean. He had his sights on somewhere bigger. He moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where his aunt lived and he became a stockbroker. She had a reputation for being one of the toughest insurance adjusters in the Wild West. Your aunt? <laughs> yes, my aunt, yes. So she, she said, basically, it's dog-eat-dog dog in the business world, you know, do what it takes. What did you do? How did you eat dogs? <laughs> basically, in stock brokerage profession, you don't eat dogs. You cannibalise other brokers' clients. Um, but an idea of my own was dumpster diving, we would go dumpster diving in other brokerages, offices, find... Well, literally, you'd jump literally. into their dumpsters to look for their secrets. <laughs> With rubber gloves, box cutters and um, plastic bags, we'd go dig client correspondence out and call them up. And um, I didn't think it would work, but the first time I did it, I got like a, over 100,000 portfolio transferred over to me from a, a customer who'd made a complaint against that brokerage. Do you know whether, in your rise to the top... Yes. ..whether... There were victims, like the person who you stole the portfolio from. It's so cutthroat, everybody's doing it to everybody else. If you don't do it, you're going to perish. So the guy whose account I stole, he's naturally stealing other people's accounts at the same time. Do you know what I've always wondered about these kind of cultures of business? Did it just start that way, or did particularly sort of wicked psychopathic people come in and sort of <laughs> mould it, and by the time you joined, it had been moulded in that way? Um, my only insight is I was assigned to a table that they called the criminal quad. Um, one of them, he'd been into prison for two years. So he got out and he explained his absence from the business. He said he was in cancer fighting uh, this illness that had almost killed him. He got lists of people who, uh, who had cancer and he was calling them, bonding with them through the shared suffering and then opening accounts from those people. But things were about to turn very bad for Sean, as we'll find out later in the programme. Rasheen Isaacs is in her 50s. She says she can pinpoint the moment she knew she was going to make it. She was in nursing and then she did a business course and she looked down on a piece of paper and saw a pyramid and it was the pyramid that was known as Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. At the basis, it's food safety 
all the sort of you know caveman type stuff. Then next step up is sexual maturity and being at one with yourself with other people in relationships. And then it goes up in another stage to the point where then self actualization or this ability to feel that you have achieved to your own ability. And where were you on the pyramid at that point? Oh, I was down in the middle on the way up. And did you think to yourself, I want to self-actualize? What I thought to myself is, they're showing me a ladder and I can see where I am on that ladder. So I do have somewhere I can go. Rasheen Isaacs is the richest of all our interviewees. She's a multimillionaireess and she's made her money from healthcare provisions and things like that. Luckily enough for me, I feel as if I'm on the pinnacle of self-actualization now. And I've been very lucky to have been there many, many years. So self-actualization is the best in the whole hierarchy? It's the top of the pyramid. It's like sitting on the point of the pyramid. Do you think some self-actualizers look down at those below them who haven't yet achieved self-actualization and pity them? I don't believe they do. One of the reactions that I met whenever we did come back out into the business world and we were supposedly these masters of business was that we were almost feared by the other business fraternity around us. Do you think that you have given anything up to be self-actualised? Yes, I have. Um, I don't have my own children and I don't have that kind of structure in life of a, a family. Do you think there's a connection between the way that you climbed all the way to the top of the pyramid and the fact that you didn't have children? Well, at the time, I never even stopped to think about it, but it's possible that I set aside the family in order to give myself time and energy to climb to the top. But I wonder whether you, in retrospect, feel a bit kind of conned by Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that it was making you go to a place and you kind of rushed off to that place and then you didn't sort of stop and think about the bigger picture of your life. It's very interesting. It gave me a series of boxes all stacked on top of each other that had hooks in them that I could hang things on and make some sense of my world to a greater degree than I had been doing. It's the here and the now And the love for the sound Of the moments that keep us moving So why did you decide to start giving all your money away? It was... A dark, wet, wintry night whenever the Irish Post arrived on my doormat and in there was a young tennis player from an Irish family. Her name, funnily enough, was Roisin, which is what attracted me to the paper in the first place. Well, you saw the word Roisin in the article. and that made me read the article. Now, Roisin was about 10 or 11 at the time. Her family could not afford to push her any further and they were looking for a sponsor and this was the very first time that I even considered the possibility of sponsoring anyone for anything anyway I eventually became her sponsor does giving money away fulfill the whole in a way that making the money unexpectedly doesn't Yes, there is a fulfilment and your giving of oneself, but also I think it fulfills my small gap of not having my own children to see other children given a chance. 
How much money uh, have you made? How much money have I made? <laughs> I don't know if that's a very fair question. It would be a few million. A few million. And, and how much do you intend to give away? I don't know yet, because I'm 55 next month. And if I live until I'm 85, I've got 30 years to give it away. Machine Isaacs. Over in Phoenix, Arizona, Sean Atwood had decided to take on a second nighttime job with drug dealing on a massive scale. He saw it at first not so much as a business or a wicked act, but as something like philanthropy, putting his own safety in jeopardy by providing hallucinogenic drugs to a grateful public. I was throwing raves. It started out with house parties. I had so much money. I started buying drugs for me and all my friends and then just got bigger and bigger and bigger and it ended up in the distribution of club drugs, mostly ecstasy but also special K, LSD. I would say I wanted to bring the acid house culture to America but the more attention I got as I was doing this, the more it fed my ego. You know, it ended up all about the money and the glitter girls and, you know, all this hedonistic stuff. So... When you're in a situation like that, your attention starts out good and people start paying you all this attention, your personality changes. You were in competition with another drug dealer called Sammy the Bull? Sammy the Bull Gravano, yes. Who'd, who'd uh, confessed to 19 murders. And probably did a lot more than that. He was the hitman for John Gotti. Were you not thinking, I don't really want to be in competition with this person? <laughs> Absolutely I was. And again, he moved into the rave scene in the late 90s, mm. lit the place up, Federal agents came in, they were tape recording license plates, and all the locals, you know, were noticing this because I was working with the locals and they were telling me, You've got to get out of this, there's too much going on. But it was too late. Sammy the Bull had brought the Phoenix rave scene to the attention of the police, and what happened next was inevitable. I was on my computer doing an options trade. And they just, they didn't knock, they just broke it down. Well, okay, they knocked once. Tempe Police Department. So I run into the bedroom. I'm like, oh, wake up, wake up, it's the cops. We hear them knock again, we're like, what should we do? So we better let them in. We're, we're coming through the living room and then just, boom! The door just flies off, its hinges and hits the wall. And next thing they just come in like, like an army. All these men in the Darth Vader mask pointing submachine guns. Get on the ground now, you're on top of Get on the ground, don't <laughs> So you just jump down, and next thing they're on you, they just crush you. Um, were you thinking, what have I done? Well, I knew what I'd done. I mean, I'd seen the consequences of drugs. I had friends go off the deep end. I had friends commit suicide. So when you were lying on the floor with the swap man on top of you, you didn't think, this is unjustified? All I thought was, I'm about to get shot by one of these guys because the guns were in my face and they were shaking and that's, I just was terrified. Sean was taken to the local jail and to a series of holding cells called the Horseshoe. You'd be left in one cell for hours and there's like 30 people, 40 people. You're all crushed together. There's hardly any air coming in. There's drunken homeless people on the floor throwing up or asleep. There's cockroaches everywhere. Fights are breaking out amongst gang members. Blood's going everywhere. People are pounding on the glass at the front, yelling at the guards to let them out. And the guards are just telling everyone to, you know, what they can do with themselves. And people would come up to me and prisoners would say, we can see that there's like a fear on your face. 
you've got to get rid of that or you, you'll get preyed on by the gangs. People will pick on you if they can see this anxiety all over you. Did you reply, well, in fact, that makes me more anxious? <laughs> no, uh, sarcasm generally gets you smashed in prison when you're just a skinny uh, English guy like me. You know, I can't think of like, anything worse other than maybe being in the army, <laughs> being, being in prison, and also being at a rave. Um, <laughs> uh, There's a, a variety of cellmates and people I lived with. Um, my first cellmate in the Arizona Department of Corrections was a serial home invader torturer. His preferred method of torture was to take a ball-peen hammer to somebody's kneecap. He was also a heroin addict, so I'm trying to get to sleep at night, and he's telling me these torture stories. I'm up there on the top bunk. He's high on heroin, and he's done too much, so he'll be running to the toilet one minute and throwing up, coming back to talk to me with, with, with torture stories. Would that, would that <laughs> cheer you up in a way? Because at least it was like, you know, going to the movies. <laughs> It was some interesting stuff that I did document, you know, for future use. Yeah. But when you're there, it's, it's a bit frightening at the time. When he's telling you he's got a uh, padlock in a sock that he could kill me by bashing my head in while I'm asleep, it, it becomes a bit more concerning. I curled up in my uh, blanket, my sheet, keep the cockroaches off me, put my headset on, I was listening to Vivaldi, and, that, and the tears just started coming out. That was the first time I cried. Um, just felt so lonely and shut off, thought I was never going to get out, thought maybe I was going to end up with anywhere from 25 to 200 years. Yeah. Just really regretting everything I'd done. And I consider myself lucky that I only got nine and a half years and ended up just doing under six of it. Sean is not ambitious anymore. Well, he is, but only in the form of trying to make it as a writer. He's just this week found a publisher for his book, Green Baloney and Pink Boxes, doing time in America's toughest jail. Are there any particular memories of your ambitious times, your rise to the top, that kind of break your heart when you think about what you actually did to get there? The thing that breaks my heart is the consequences of this on my parents. There was an article came out after my arrest. I was the cover story of a local newspaper. They did like a 10-page thing. They orchestrated a portrait of me on the front page and I was like Nosferatu with a Batman T-shirt on and I had all these ravers behind me dancing. So I'm in this like strobe-lit inferno uh, but anyway, it was extremely upsetting article. It was sensationalised. So I called my aunt. I said, oh, my, my family have not got to see this. And my aunt's like, it's too late, there's an internet version. So my, my parents read it. My mum had a nervous breakdown. She's been on and off medication ever since. And, you know, that's something I've got to live with for the rest of my life. It's extremely upsetting. You know, I, I try to block that out of my mind, but when I see her... And I see she's shaken up, and I think, oh, my God, you know, I'm responsible for that. That's my mother. She raised me. I, I came from, a, a, you know, a good, loving family. I've got no excuses for the crimes I did. When all this happened, they backed me up 100%. They paid for my attorney. It's just they were really, really there for me. Even right now, I'm getting upset I'm talking about it. Yeah. I, I wasn't thinking about that when I was running around 
dancing all night and passing. That's something I should have been thinking about. John Ronson on Ambition was presented by the writer John Ronson. It was produced by Laura Parfit and Simon Jacobs. It was a unique production for BBC Radio 4. In a few moments' time, one of the most spectacular discoveries ever made in an ancient royal tomb as a history of the world in a hundred objects continues. That's uh, actually not in a few moments' time. It's in an hour's time. For more than a year, Martin Bell has been following members of the Territorial Army from getting called up through their training, doing their tour of duty and then back to civilian life. The TA were once dismissed as weekend warriors, whose members like to play with guns and go on camping weekends. But since 2003, almost half of them have served in war zones. He meets the TA's senior officer, Tom O'Brien, who recognises a very different 